The second lesson this morning is from the Hebrew Bible, the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 33, verses 7 through 11. So you, mortal, I have made a sentinel for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked ones, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but their blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from their ways, and they do not turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but you will have saved your life. Now you mortal say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Our transgressions and our sins weigh upon us, and we waste away because of them. How then can we live? So say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, or you will die. Why shall you die, house of Israel? Here ends the reading. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. Uh, before I get rolling with the sermon, I want to take a moment uh, to uh, express my gratitude to Pastor Jenny, uh, Pastor Mary, Pastor Dan, um, and to all of you at St. John's, our St. John's family, for supporting me in my journey to ordination. This is the first time I've stood before you since I've been officially approved to start the process toward ordination in the United Church of Christ, and it would not have happened uh, without the support of you and our staff here at St. John's, uh, and I'm very grateful for that, so thank you. Let's pray. Dear God, open our hearts today to hear the message that you have for us. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and show us how to be better stewards of your world and in better relationship with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a meme going around on Facebook, and the first time I saw it was, uh, I think, on the McCroby's page. Um, but it's one that talks about how 2020 has been such a horrible experience that a portal to another universe could open up in your kitchen and you'd just be like, oh, well, it's something else. Um, my response was that uh, I probably would step through it just to see, uh, because it probably is better on the other side than it is here. Um, but, of course, a portal is not going to appear. We're not going to have an opportunity to step out and do 2020. Kate's over here shrugging. Maybe a portal will appear. We don't know. Probably murder hornets will come through if it's a portal. So uh, let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, you know, but for better or worse, in 2020, right here, right now, we have this messed up world that we're in, and we have to figure out how we're going to muddle through. Now, today's Hebrew Bible lesson is from the prophet Ezekiel, 
and the portion of chapter 33 that's assigned to us by the lectionary today places Ezekiel in the role of sentinel for God's people, the Israelites. The first six verses of this chapter, just before today's pericope, now that's a fancy seminary word I didn't learn until my first year of seminary, that really just means an excerpt, a cut out from the text. And that explains what a sentinel is before the text that we read today. A sentinel or a watchman would have been a military officer uh, assigned to watch the walls or gates of a city or fort. And if there was danger, the sentinel would let people know. If the people didn't muster for defense and they were subsequently killed, the sentinel wasn't blamed because they did their job of telling people about the danger. However, if there was an attack the sentinel knew was coming and they were not warning the folks about that and people were killed or even if they weren't, then the sentinel was held responsible and usually executed. So here in verses 7 through 11, we see that God has appointed Ezekiel as God's sentinel. God's placed responsibility upon the prophet to warn the Israelites that they are in grave danger unless they change their ways. God warns Ezekiel that if the prophet does not call out Israel for its unrighteousness, then anything bad, like death, that befalls the Israelites will be Ezekiel's responsibility. On the other hand, if Ezekiel does his job as a sentinel and warns the people, but they don't change their ways, Ezekiel won't be held accountable for what happens. In verse 10, it's apparent that Ezekiel the sentinel has warned the people that they need to repent of their wickedness because they respond with desperation, that they are weighed down by guilt and it is literally wasting them away. They're convinced they will die. But God says, I don't want you to die. I want you to turn away from your wickedness instead. Why do you have to die? My friends, be assured, God does not want us to die. doesn't mean we're meant to live forever. doesn't mean that bad things won't ever happen. But what it means is that God wants us to thrive. God wants us to flourish. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that he came to give life so that we can live it more abundantly. And the communion litany that we'll recite later this morning articulates our goal of moving toward a future when abundance for all means scarcity for none. Christians are resurrection people called to new life and to share the grace and promise of resurrection with others. The flourishing God wants for us is not just for the people we like, the people in our church, the people who follow Christianity, God wants everyone to live and to flourish. It only takes a moment for us to know that much of our world is not flourishing. And the parts of the world or people that are flourishing are often doing it at the expense of others. We're in the midst of a pandemic pandemic that shows little signs of abating before this year is over. And it has revealed quite plainly the inequity that exists in our country and our world and the collective human trauma inflicted by it has made most of us feel as though flourishing 
is impossible for us or for anyone else. But why am I talking so much about flourishing when this pericope from Ezekiel seems to be more about calling out people for doing bad things? Now, had I been writing this sermon 25 years ago, the notion that God wants the world to flourish really would not have occurred to me. And I, wouldn't have been fo- I would have been focused, rather, on this message to the wicked. And most of you know that my faith formation was primarily in the conservative Southern Baptist Church. And one of the primary theological differences between conservative evangelical denominations and mainline denominations, like the UCC, is their eschatology, another seminary word. Eschatology is a theological term that means what you believe will happen in the end. The end of time, the end of God's revelation, the end of the story. Southern Baptists and most conservative evangelicals believe that those who are saved will go to heaven and those who are not will be sent to hell. And they also believe that God's ultimate plan is to destroy the earth and then remake a new one and a new heaven in the perfect form that it had in the Garden of Eden back in the creation narrative of Genesis. There's a strong focus on personal piety and the belief that any suffering encountered here on earth will be countered by glory in heaven. The emphasis is placed on saving souls and helping people in need is almost always coupled with that goal. Little focus is placed on environmental stewardship because God is going to destroy the earth anyway, so why worry about it? And flourishing in this way of thinking is guaranteed in the afterlife for those who are saved. And the fact that some flourish and some languish here on earth is usually explained away by claims of people being more blessed or more fortunate than others. So 25 years ago, my focus would have been making sure that we called out sin and tried to save as many souls as we should. My theology and my eschatology have shifted significantly since then. My break with conservative Christianity came as a result with being gay. The theology of personal piety and purity is incapable of affirming the true worth of someone who is not heterosexual. There's no place for me. In 2013, I started attending a UCC church in Altadena, California. And for the first time, I was part of a Christian community that affirmed my worth just as I am. And more importantly for me, it welcomed questions. It welcomed conversation about God, about our beliefs, about our theology, about the way we move in this world. I firmly believe that because human beings are thinking creatures, part of God's intention for us to flourish is for us to think about everything, including our beliefs about the divine. And part of flourishing for me is the freedom to ask questions. If you see something, say something. If you've traveled really since 9-11, you probably have seen placards and posters that say that. Mass transit stations, 
train stations, airports. If you see something, say something. Now, in the perspective that I had 25 years ago, the idea of seeing something and saying something to this wicked folks would have to do with making myself feel more righteous or feel like I have saved more souls that are going to go to heaven. But now, if I see something and I say something, it's because I'm fully convinced that our ability to truly flourish the way God wants us to flourish is connected to the flourishing of the people and the world around me, around us. It's about the interconnectedness and interdependence of all people and all things. And that means community matters. When I was in kindergarten at Christian school, of course, one of the words we learned to spell was church. It's not a difficult word for a young reader to learn. But I'll never forget the teacher telling us that the U and R go in the middle because you are church. We are the church. A church cannot exist without people. A church is not a building. It's not a prescribed way of saying things or singing certain songs. A church is a community made up of people. And right now, I think in the time of pandemic, I think we understand what that means more now than maybe we ever have. If you see something, say something. It is less about calling out than it is about calling forth. I think that a key component to a healthy and resilient community is the vulnerability shown by its members. I think this is the case because we cannot be vulnerable without also being authentic. Being authentically vulnerable increases the resilience and strength of the community. My favorite analogy to demonstrate the way vulnerability can contribute to strength and resilience is weaving. And I learned a lot about it from my dear friend Holly Benson Hafer. She's a weaver. She dresses me in costumes, and I was the mascot for a national or for a regional rather weaving conference that was held in Jackson, Mississippi in 1998. It was a modified Easter bunny costume with the ears pinned down so I looked like a sheep. That's what I did, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. (laughs) But if you're weaving a tapestry, and an example is on the right-hand side of the graphic, if you're weaving a tapestry, or left-hand side, rather, you construct it with threads that are independently fragile. Each thread has no strength on its own. But as they're woven together, as they become more connected, interconnected, interwoven, they collectively gain strength. They are no longer just threads. They are vital components to a tapestry. That's like us in our church community. It's up to all of us to show up in an authentically vulnerable manner because it encourages every other member of our community 
to be authentically vulnerable. And that authentic vulnerability shown by everyone weaves us together into a community and a tapestry of strength and resilience. If you see something, say something. We have a responsibility as people of God to serve as sentinels, but to never forget that the sentinels are also part of the greater community. Repentance isn't about them. It's also about us. Repentance isn't about apologizing. It's about changing trajectory. It's about remembering where we should be headed and reorienting ourselves toward God. Repentance requires imagination. In his book, Roots for Radicals, Edward Chambers speaks of the human existence as tension between two worlds, the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. The Israelites respond to Ezekiel's call for repentance by saying that they know they've done wrong and they feel guilty, but they don't see a way out. They can't come out from under their guilt and they've resigned themselves to death. God responds by saying, I don't want you to die. I want you to repent. I want you to change your trajectory. Imagine the world as it ought to be and head in that direction. Repentance begets hope. If you see something, say something. Whether it's with your voice Letters to lawmakers, stickers on your car, signs in your yard, or a t-shirt with a message. Say something to a world that needs truth, compassion, and hope. Theologian Walter Brueggemann tells us that the prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion grieve in a society that practices denial, and express hope in a society that lives in despair. If you see something, say something. We are called to be sentinels. We are called to repent of the sin of silence in the face of oppression and speak the truth. We are called to have compassion for those who are oppressed and for those who are blind to their complicity in perpetuating oppression. We are called to express hope to those who feel crushed under the weight of their guilt and despair. And we are called to imagine a world as it ought to be. Together we rise and together we work toward a creation of that world. Amen.